Okay, this morning we're talking about as we continue our series. This is my sweat rag, by the way. And we're not going to call it sweat. We're going to call it anointing. It all depends on how you frame it. So, we're getting all anointed here. Um, amen. We're talking about financial matters in the, the series that we're doing this summer. We had people in Woodland Hills fill out those issues uh, that they felt were most pertinent and they wanted to have addressed. And, and one of them was, was the topic of money. And how should Christians handle it and, and, and things of that sort, a number of different questions there. I spoke to a guy this last Friday and I, he asked what I was preaching on. I said, well, we're going to be talking about money. He says, ooh, that's a touchy subject. And I said, after last week, it feels like a yawner. I mean, it's like... <laughs> For those of you who weren't here last week, we also preached on a topic that starts with M, but we're going to get off of that one right now. I have a couple passages I want to read. They're found in your bulletin, three passages in particular. First of all, the most quoted verse in the history of the church when it comes to money, Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, which says this, Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. That means a tenth, by the way. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Malachi 3, 8-10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, in the New Testament now, Paul says this, on the first day of the week, each one of you should, should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. In keeping with his income. Saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. What's happening here is Paul's taking up an offering for the church in Jerusalem that's going through a famine. And he's basically saying there how to do it and he's... It shows you that the issue of trust was back there in the early church because Paul says, tell you what, you guys set aside some people that you approve of and they'll accompany us to Jerusalem in case you're worried that we're going to take a trip to the Bahamas. It's, it's, trust is not a new issue. And finally, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 7 and 8. Paul says this, Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, make this word come alive. Lord God, in the midst of this heat, in the midst of the sweat, and in the midst of the anointing, Lord God, pour out your spirit in a hot way, God. Give us attentiveness. And Lord, give us receptivity to hear what your word has to say about this, Lord. I pray that you would use this as a way of making us into the kind of people, the kind of stewards that you want us to be. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. This is a topic, I, I need to tell you, it's a topic that I, I've got a little, uh, a little bit of energy for. Most topics, as you know, I don't have much energy for. But this one, I'm kind of uh, hot about. 
The reason I'm kind of hot about it is not that I'm so interested in making Christians good givers. What gets to me is this. That it seems to me that many, if not most, of the people in our culture who are not churchgoers see churches as being primarily about money. I don't know if you get that impression, but it's certainly, it's my impression and it grates me. In fact, there are many believers in the church that get the impression that what the church is really about is money. I mean, yeah, they use a lot of good theology, a lot of religious talk, do a lot of religious things, but the bottom line, when push comes to shove, the bottom line is the dollar. They want the dollar. They want, it's a business. It's like 3M, but they just market themselves to Christians. There's a, a lady that, a middle-aged lady that I've been talking to for some time. Middle-aged means anything that's slightly older than me because I'm still young. And I've been sharing the Lord with this young lady, for a, or a middle-aged lady, for a while. She doesn't believe in God, but maybe some, some days she does. But she doesn't believe in Jesus. Maybe he was a good man. She has no belief in the Bible whatsoever. But she's a good woman, wants to do a lot of good in, in her heart. Has a bad drinking problem, but, but has really good intentions. And she decided that her life needed some meaning and she needed to be doing some things, so she decided one day to go down to her local church. It was a church just on the corner. She didn't know one church from the other, so she just went to this church and started attending. And after about a couple weeks, the pastor wanted to know if she wanted to become a member. And she, she was relating this to me later on, and I was like excited at this point, thinking, whoa, man, maybe she became a believer. I mean, uh, this is exciting. So I asked her, you know, well, did he ask you questions about Jesus and, and about the Bible and about God and things like that? I mean, you know, what, what was it talk like? And she smiled and she just kind of said, and it's like she expected this. She goes, oh, no, 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 we just talked about the normal stuff. He wanted to know, you know, what he could expect from us, my husband and I, in terms of finances, you know. And that's what would you expect when you're buying a membership. Yeah, oh, and we had to barter a little bit, she said. I mean, he wanted, you know, a little more than we were willing to give, but we said maybe next year we'll give a little bit more, you know. And, but it was good enough, and so we got our membership. And I don't know about you, but that just grates on me like I can't express. Here is this person who doesn't have any faith sitting in, just slipped through the hands of this pastor who was only concerned with their giving. Very clearly, his ministry was a job to him, and the main purpose of his job was to stay employed, and so if you're going to join the church, what he's got to know is how much are you going to give. And I wish I could believe, I wish I could find it in me to believe, but I'm way too cynical for this, but I wish I could believe that this was like the rare exception. This was the anomaly. Normally it's not like this. But I know that that's not the case. It's far too much like this. And as a few of you asked, the question is, why do so many churches so much of the time talk so much about so much money. You get it all over the place. I remember growing up in the church, uh, it seemed like uh, every sermon, or maybe it was just every sermon that you commented on afterwards, Dad, but every sermon was about money. And driving home, he's always talking about money, you know. But they were, they were always talking about money. We got this, we got to get this, we got to get this. And they're trying to hit you up, hit you up, hit you up with, with, with pledge cards and all that kind of stuff. And you go to a lot of churches and you hear over and over again, I've been in churches like this, tithing this, tithing that. They, they, they spin this out. They make the tithing doctrine, you'd think it was equivalent to the atonement or justification by faith or the inspiration of the Bible or whatever. But it's constantly driven home and you're made to feel like a little worm if you're not tithing, given 10% of your income or what have you. I'll talk more about that later. But in light of that, 
It's not surprising to me that there is a deep-rooted cynicism in the part of people in our culture towards religious people and money. Because I got it too. Who can blame them? In fact, if I was here, if I was here, my first service at Woodland Hills, you're here this morning and this is your first time, and the preacher stands up and you find out the topic is about money, every bone in my body would be, say, be saying, it's time to leave. So I'm glad that you're still here. Now, you're not as cynical as I am. I would be gone. And when you couple that with the stuff that goes on in the name of Christianity on the boob tube, as people are watching this, getting their impressions about what Christianity is all about from these preachers who have got these elaborate scams that prey on people to get money, it's no wonder that people have this cynical view of Christianity and think it's all about, about, about church. I mean, you'd think that God, according to one evangelist, holds people hostage. This is ingenious. Uh, you know, God's going to kill me if I don't raise $3 million here. You know, front page of the paper, Jesus holds man's hostage, demands $3 million ransom. And, and that just gives Christianity a bad name. I don't know if you've ever seen this guy or gotten letters from him, but I don't mind naming names when it's this obvious. It's Robert Tilton. Uh, I, I, a person gave me a letter that they had gotten from him, and I can't even describe what this letter was like. It was so crazy. It was such a scam. He said, basically, in a nutshell, I can't even make it clear. It was bizarre, but he, there's a target. He sent you in the mail a target, okay, a big target. Calls it God's bullseye. And you're supposed to write on every level of this target what needs you have. And then he pr provided you with this dart. I am serious, folks. And an anointed dart. No, no, an anointed dart. Jesus healed this. <laughs> and you ought to take 15 paces back and in Jesus' name throw the dart at the bullseye. And depending on where the dart hits, that need, wherever it hit, will be, will be met. But of course, that means that you have already expressed your faith. This is how they always phrase it. You've expressed your seed faith. You've expressed your faith by sending Robert Tilton like $15, $25, or whatever. Only then does the blessing really kick in, and God will guide that little arrow uh, to its appropriate target. It amazes me that there is anybody on the planet that actually buys that stuff, but the guy makes a lot of money. He's almost been in jail a couple times, and maybe he should, but this is like... There's a lot of good people out there who've got really good hearts and really good minds and really good intentions, and they trust people who stand up with a Bible in their hand, and whatever you say, it must be true, and these people prey on them. I went to a house of a, of a man one time, about 80, I'm still just kind of getting warmed up, okay, so just, but I'm telling you why I got a passion for this. This 85-year-old guy had a great heart, had a feeble mind. I went to his house and he was crying, and I, I asked him, why are you crying? I, I, this is, I was a, a pastor of visitation out east. Brother Drake was his name, and he was crying, and he brought me to the table, and he says, he named this TV evangelist that most of you, uh, I'm sure, have heard of. He says, Brother so-and-so needs me. He sent me this letter. It's personal. It says, Dear Brother Drake, I'm sitting here in my office thinking of you and how loyal you've been all these years. Why, just last October you sent me $30, and how the Lord used that $30. But now I got a need... Satan's trying to take over the ministry here. And the Lord told me that I can, depend, I can trust all my supporters to give $100 to this ministry. And God will richly bless you if you do. Because, because and you got to lay your check down there and, and lay your hand on it and then write your needs and he'll, he'll make sure it gets blessed. 
And Brother Drake, he didn't know any better. He said, oh, he's leaning on me personally. But this Brother Drake was a senior citizen who was etching out a poverty income on a little bit of Social Security. He didn't have any extra pennies, let alone $100. And he was crying because he didn't have it. He called his friends. He called his children. wanted somebody to please give him $100 so he could give it to this ministry. I showed him at the bottom of the last page how there's, a, there's this nine-digit number. I said, Brother Drake, this is what you are to this evangelist. Have you ever written to him personally in handwriting? Has he ever written? Have you ever met him? No, he doesn't know you. You are a nine-digit number in a computer. And of course he knows whenever you send an offering, they feed that in. I was trying to make him understand that this is not something to get bent out of shape. But here's what really bugs me, okay? Can I just let loose here for a second? This guy's got four houses totaling worth about $13 million, I'm told. He wears these deluxe rings. He wears Rolex watches. He drives around in Rolls Royce. This old man has got living on $150 a month or whatever, and this guy's got the gall to prey on his good intentions to get more money out of him. Something's wrong with this picture. And there's a lot of predators like that, and it's not surprising that while they're there, there's a deep-rooted cynicism in our culture about money. This stuff... It's not polite, maybe, to name names. It's not polite to say it too out loud, but there's a time when you've got to stop being polite because this is not doing Christianity any good, folks. It's doing it a great deal of harm. Yeah. Amen. I, I could go on that. Reverend Ike, he says, God is money. God is green. He brags about driving 31 Rolls Royces. <sighs> okay. Okay, what are some, some biblical principles about money? Handling money, how we're supposed to deal with money, how we're supposed to give it, how ministers are supposed to handle it. There's four principles that I'm going to run through at lightning speed here this morning because we're all hot. We're all anointed, I mean. And, and uh, I'm just going to go through this, okay? You don't have to agree with me on all these. It's like all these topics. You know, you don't have to agree with me on all this stuff. Just, just hear it out and take whatever you want. and Maybe the Lord will correct you later. Okay, now... <laughs> Okay, I'm a, the first principle is what I call the principle of proportionality. Note what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16. He says this, Let everyone decide in their own heart what they want to give according to their income and let them set it aside on the first day of the week. According to their income. What's very important about that verse is what Paul does not say. In fact, you don't find a verse in the New Testament that says this. Now, get ready for this. I don't want to offend anybody, but Paul doesn't say, set aside 10% of your income. He says, decide on your own what you want to give, and let everyone give according to their income, in proportion to their income, as you've been blessed. And in fact, throughout the New Testament, you always find this principle. You give according to as God has blessed you. You give according to the desire of your heart. But nowhere in the New Testament do you ever find the Old Testament doctrine of tithing repeated. Here's why. The Old Testament doctrine of tithing, giving 10%, was the Israelites' form of taxation. I don't know if you knew that or not. They had three taxes that they paid. They paid, they paid an agricultural tax. They paid a government subsidizing tax to, to pay for people in government. And they paid a temple tax. The temple tax was 10% of their income. Each of the other taxes were also 10% of their income. So they had 30% tax. In Israel, the, the, the nation was basically run by the temple. It was intended to be a theocracy. 
And people supported the religious institution of the temple and the Levitical priesthood by their taxation, which was 10%. Therefore, they called it the tithe. God got very angry with them when they would not support through their taxes, when they cheat on their taxes. If you want a good application of Malachi for today, don't cheat on your taxes. But if you want a bad application of Malachi today, make it into a doctrine of the church for today. Because folks, we don't support any Levites. That's what, the, that's what the temple tax was for. And to me, again, I'm a very cynical person when it comes to this sort of thing, but it, I find it peculiar. I find it, let's say, interesting. That there's no other doctrine. Find me one other doctrine that the church believes, that the church stands for and preaches on, that is based exclusively on an Old Testament text. You start bringing doctrines out of the Old Testament as though we're not in a new dispensation, and we could start making this into a doctrine. No one should ever wear wool and cotton together because the Old Testament teaches that. No one should ever eat pork because the Old Testament teaches that. No one should ever turn on a, or do any work on Saturday because the Old Testament teaches that. Why is it that all of a sudden we find one verse that deals with, with this 10% thing, and now that's a doctrine? Well, it might be because some people want some secure income they can count on. The New Testament principle is this. Give according to your income, in proportion to your income. There are people, as Jesus observed in the synagogue with the widow, there are people who, in the present situation that they are at, in the season of life that they are at, they can't afford to give 1% of their income to anything. And if you can't feed your kids, don't even think about giving something to the church. Let, be praying that God will first bless you to take care of your family, which is your first responsibility. It's interesting that Paul, he's taking up a famine, right? He's taking up a, a famine relief fund. He doesn't go to the Jerusalem church and ask them for an offering. Because the Jerusalem church in a famine, they don't have anything to give. But the Corinthians are prosperous. So he goes to the Corinthians and he says, give according to your income. The bottom line is this. The 10% deal, that may work for some people and may not work for others. There are people who in this, in this season of life are not in a position to give much of anything. But there are others who as they grow in the Lord, as they see, as they see that the main value of their income and the main value of their resources is to further the kingdom, there are people that as they see that, they can say, you know what, I can live off of 60% of my income. The other 40% I'm going to give to the work of the Lord. There's a man in Ohio that I've read about who's a multimillionaire, and, and he lives off of about 1% of his income, and that's comfortable enough. But he says, this is where I want to live. Everything else I have is going to go to the work of the Lord. There are people that are like that. But there's no rule, no fixed percentage that I or anybody can give you and say that everybody's got to conform to this. In the New Testament, it's a percentile sort of thing. A second principle, very important, the most important principle perhaps in the, in the New Testament is this. I could call it maybe the principle of giving out of the heart. Paul says, let everyone decide in their own heart what they want to give and let them set it aside. Not under compulsion. Not reluctantly. But because God loves a cheerful giver. Paul here is explicitly saying this. Whatever your reasons are for giving, it shouldn't be because you feel guilty. It shouldn't be because someone's got a thermometer that your name is on. <laughs> it shouldn't be a reluctant thing like pulling teeth. It should be an, a heart thing. It's not that there's some percentile that everybody's got to match up to. It comes out of your heart. In fact, in the New Testament, 
All growth, all change, everything about our behavior is the result of God doing something first on our inside. Isn't that true? God moves in your heart, and you find that you begin to love people more. Not because there's some policeman, some church policeman, seeing how you measure on some scale of love. No, it's not a matter of conforming to some external rule. It's a matter of the heart. God changes you, and you want to love. God changes you, and you care more. God changes you, and you want to fellowship with Christians more. Not because there's some rule or some external strokes you're going to get for doing it, but because it's in your heart to do it. God changes you, as we've been talking about the last couple weeks, and you want to become more disciplined in your sex life. Not because there's some policeman going around checking on you, but because you want to honor God in your heart. Your heart changes. And so all change in the Christian life is from the inside out, and it's exactly the same way with our finances. When God begins to move in your life, when God begins to change your heart, you know what happens? God changes our financial behavior in the same way he changes all of our other behavior from the inside out. And as God moves in your heart, you begin to have a different set of priorities, don't you? You begin to see things different. Things that used to be so important to you are no longer important. Things that you never thought of before now start to become important. You begin to see more. You, you grow in your love for Jesus. You grow in your investment in the kingdom. You begin to find more joy in seeing God change lives and seeing God use kids and, and hearing the word of God and worshiping God. And as you begin to see those things as being more valuable, you know what? Your financial priorities begin to change and the stronghold of this culture that says, me, 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 and everything I get belongs to me, that stronghold begins to break as God moves in your heart. And you don't need some thermometer, or some law, or some percentage point over your head to tell you it. It happens on the inside. Our job in the ministry is not to be preaching money. Our job is to be preaching Jesus Christ. Because when you get people turned on to Jesus Christ, their pocketbook's going to follow. When people, begin to get inv- when people begin to get a vision for what God can do, when you get people in an environment where the Spirit of God begins to move on them, they begin to see that God is real and salvation is real. They see, they see marriages begin to get healed. And, and that becomes important to them. That becomes more valuable to them. They begin to give. They begin to give. You don't need to badger them to do it either. It's in their heart to do it. Jesus said that where your, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And I'll tell you, where your heart is, that's where your pocketbook's going to be. And you know, a person who's really into cars, you know what? They'll always have money for cars. They may not have money for anything else in the world, but they'll have money for cars. A person who's really into clothing, they'll find money for clothing. They'll find a way to do it. I'm really getting anointed, praise God. They'll find a way to do it because clothes is important. That's their treasure. They get some... It does something for them. They may have a really lousy house and maybe they don't even eat three square, three square meals a day, but they've got clothing because that's their treasure. For other people, it's a house. They're house poor. Everything they got is gone in that house. They can't travel. They can't have fun. They can't do anything, but they got their house because that's where their treasure is. For some people, it's other things. It's, it's, it's some sports, golf clubs, or somebody, some wives should be saying amen. You know, they can't even afford to Get the car fixed, but they got money for golf clubs because where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Where your heart is, that's where the pocketbook's going to be. And what happens when we become believers is our treasure begins to be invested in the kingdom. They begin to be weaned from all the other treasures that you might have. And you know what? It becomes valuable to you. It becomes important to you. It becomes something that you really believe in. And if a preacher has got to start coming up with a percentage point based on the Old Testament, has got to start harping on it, you know what it tells me? It tells me you're not preaching Jesus good enough. Because if you start preaching Jesus and you get people in love with him and you get people turned on to him and he becomes the most important thing in their life, the finances is going to begin to follow. Amen? Our job is to preach Jesus, not money. We can make no needs and we'll do that. Here's how it should work. 
We're involved in the ministry here. We got needs, right? And we want to make known those needs. Like Paul was making known the need of the famine. He said, you know what? We got a famine on our hands. There's some Christians who are starving. I want to take up an offering. But I'm not going to compel you. I'm not going to manipulate you. Don't give reluctantly. Just however much you think you want to give, give. That's the approach you should have. Here's a need. God, you know the need. Move on people to have a burden for the need. Meet the need. A good example of it. You know when you do this? If you trust God to move instead of trusting your ability to guilt people into a percentage point, God will bless you way better than you ever would with a percentage point. Last week, we mentioned that we, we, we needed a piano. We were borrowing a person's piano every Sunday. We needed a piano. It cost, we thought, $3,500. So Steve came up here. Did anyone feel guilty last week for what Steve said? I don't think so. Steve just said, you know what? We have a, a piano we'd like to get. You know, we, we've been borrowing one. We think the church really should have one. Uh, we've done some uh, looking at it. It costs $3,500. If this is something that you'd want to give to, uh, then just make a check out and, and, and say that it's for the piano. Not a whole lot of guilt there. Not a whole lot of give 10%. <laughs> we got 3423 dollars last week in the offering. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. And you didn't need to beat up, beat up anybody to do it. And you say, well, why did God come $77 short? And it was all just miscellaneous money. You know, I mean, isn't, isn't that a coincidence? Isn't that kind of... Okay, why did God come $77 short? Well, it's because God knows what pianos cost better than Norm did. Because the piano didn't cost that much. <laughs> Amen. In fact, in fact, we got $100 left over. So we're all going to go to the Bahamas. No. Which, which leads me to this point. Have you, you notice how shabby those drums are? <laughs> <We> get... <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the, the cymbal tips over in the middle of the song. I mean, there's a, God deserves better. Okay, well, that's for another sermon. Okay, the idea here is it's, it's out of the heart. And, and, and I, I want to make a covenant with you that this is how we're always going to operate. We'll make no needs. We'll tell you things when they arise. You know, we have other people that we want to bring on staff. We'd like to bring on another worship leader. You know, we need another person to help on children's whatever. And there'll be times where we maybe we'll say, you know, we, need to, we would like to have, do this and bring the need to you. But in all of it, it will be a matter of believing God to put it on people's heart to give. And if it doesn't come through, you know what? It just means that it wasn't the time to have that. We got a vision for Woodland Hills where I could see us at Phelan or at Phelan Center or someplace else where God raises up a, a uh, in the next five years, a, uh, a, a, first of all, a building for ourselves that maybe will even be air-conditioned, praise God. <laughs> but, uh, but a teenage uh, crisis, pregnancy crisis center and a drug rehabilitation center, maybe a home for battered women and maybe some kind of food shelter. And God can really just give us a vision to do some incredible things in the Twin Cities and it all costs money. But we are never, and I'm going on record here, we are never going to have a thermometer. If we get a thermometer, I quit, okay? Is that, <laughs> I, I'm out of here. So, some kind of arm-twisting fundraiser where we got to, no, 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 if God puts it on your heart to give, give. If he doesn't, then don't. It's all in the work of the Lord. Okay, two more principles really quick. Third principle. I'll call this just the principle of personal ministry. I'm going to make this one real short. The principle of personal ministry. And what I mean by that is basically this. In the traditional model of the, of the church, the only kind of giving that counted as giving to the Lord was what you gave on Sunday morning to the religious professionals who ran the church. 
That's what giving to the Lord was. And our culture still largely buys that because you get a tax break when you give to the church. It's a nonprofit organization. But if you give to anybody else, it doesn't count as giving to the Lord, so you don't get a tax break. What I want you to know this morning is that Uncle Sam is not right on this one. <laughs> From a scriptural perspective, you are a minister. Every believer here this morning is a minister. As much of a minister as Steve back there or me up here or Mary back in the children's area or Billy Graham. You are a minister. You've got a call. You've got authority in your life. And you've got a ministry to do. Your ministry is to the people that you come in contact with on a daily basis, believers and non-believers. From a scriptural perspective, your gifts of, in your personality, your gifts and your resources and your income, your finances, these are all, all, are all tools for your ministry. Your ministry. Not my ministry, your ministry. And what you do with that, you have a better ability to hear what God wants you to do with that than I do, so you're in a better position to decide that matter than I am. Which is why Paul says, let everyone decide themselves what they want to do with their money. In the early church, we know that they gave to the Lord. It says that they gave to the Lord, but they did it by giving to each other. They had all things in common. When one person would have a need, someone else would say, listen, I got two of those. You need a car? I got two cars. Here's a car. You need a shirt? I got five shirts. Here's a shirt. They had all things in common. They took care of one another. And what I want, to, want you to see is that that counted as giving to the Lord. That was giving to the Lord. That was part of your offering to the Lord. It's just as legitimate as giving to the central church. Now, if your ministry includes us, if you, if you think that the equipping pastors of Woodland Hills Church and the things that we do here and the service that we hold here, if this is a part, if this is something that you are in favor of, if this is part of what you're invested in, if this is an extension of your ministry, in other words, then give to it. But there's also other ways to give to the Lord. And there's probably a, a lot of pastors in the Twin Cities that think that I'm really crazy for saying this right now. But it's true. When you're in a small group and somebody runs up some medical bills that they can't take care of and the rest of the people in the small group say, you know what, we're going to support you for a while until you can get over this thing, that's given to the Lord. That's building the body of Christ and it counts. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. And there's a hundred other examples you could use of that. When you support a missionary, when you support these kids going down to Mexico, all of that is given to the Lord. And maybe you can write it off in your taxes, and maybe you can't, but that really doesn't amount to a hill of beans, does it? What matters is what the Lord thinks about it. It's part of your ministry. It's part of your ministry. What Shelly and I do is we, we, we set aside some of our income that goes to matters outside of Woodland Hills. We set aside some of our income that goes to matters inside of Woodland Hills. And that's something that God leads us to do. And you know what it means more when you're personally involved with it? It means more. You know, we, we support a couple missionaries, uh, you know, in Mission Moving Mountains. And I, I believe in these missionaries, and I believe in this organization, and I don't trust many of the other ones. But I, I get letters back from these people, and I see the good that I'm doing, and it builds a relationship. It's not given to some kind of impersonal missionary fund that I'll never see again. No, this, this helps me. I get blessed by seeing the good that my dollar does. It's all part of your ministry. And the fourth principle is this. I call it the, the, the principle of disciplined rationing. The principle of disciplined rationing. Now settle down here because it may be that so far you think that everything I've said has had the implication of saying that we believers don't have to be as responsible with our finances as you previously thought we did. So brace yourself. I would argue that the New Testament 
view of stewardship requires far more responsibility and far more discipline than anything the New Testament ever approached, the Old Testament ever approached. It takes a lot of discipline, and this is why Paul says, decide what you want to give and set it aside. Make a decision, he's saying, and stick to it. And that takes discipline. It takes discipline to do that when Pastor Boyd and Pastor Steve and nobody else in this church is going to know whether you're given or not. And even if we did know, it wouldn't count towards any strokes whatsoever. It's not part of our concern. We don't even look at that stuff. When you realize that you don't get kudos for giving and you don't get detriments for not giving, when it's a personal matter between you and God, it takes a lot of discipline to do it, a lot more discipline than if you got some law hanging over your head guilting you out. It takes a lot of discipline, especially, and this is what I want to really drive home here, especially in our culture. We live, folks, in a culture that is perpetually indoctrinating us to believe that however much we have, we need more. My dad has a rule of thumb that I think is pretty accurate. However much you make, plan on spending 10% over that. That's the American way, folks. I remember when I was in, 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 when I was in grad school, living about $4,000 below the poverty line, making $12,000, supporting a family of four. I was poor. A friend of mine was making $30,000, and I thought to myself, and he would complain about having money problems. I thought to myself, how on earth can anybody making $30,000 a year have any kind of money problems? He's rich and he doesn't even know it. And then there came a time when I started making about that much. And you know what? I had money problems. <laughs> it wasn't putting macaroni and cheese on the table like it used to be, but it, it felt just as severe. Ah, but now I can still look at those heathen who make $60,000 a year, and they say they have money problems. Heathen! Selfish, greedy Americans! You know what I'm finding? However much you get up to, you acclimate to that point, and you got more toys to show for it, maybe a little bigger house to show for it, maybe a car that actually works to show for it. <laughs> but you still got the bills, you still got the pressure, and it feels like you just don't have any extra. Don't you feel like that a lot? It feels like you don't have any extra. And I'll tell you why I experienced that and you experience it. It's because we have this cultural indoctrination that says no matter how much you make, no matter how much you earn, it's never enough. You always need more. There are people who make six-figure incomes who feel like it's just so tight. And if only they made another six-figure income, then, 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 then they'd be okay. For a person who believes that this world is all there is, that you go around once in life and you've got to grab all the gusto you get, you know what? I'd say live that way. What else is there? You get as many toys as you can. Get as careful as you can. Have as much fun as you can. What else is there for you? But for the believer, we know better, don't we? We know that there's a higher calling. The purpose of life is not to get as much comfort and toys and bigness as we can, as much money as we can. The purpose of life is to impact people's lives for the kingdom of God. And therefore, the purpose of our finances and all of our resources is to impact people's lives for the kingdom of God. When the dust settles on our life, the kind of car we drove, the kind of clothes we wore, the kind of house we lived in, all of those things, how big our bank account want was, will mean less than nothing. The only thing that will have mattered is what did we do with the tools that we had to further the kingdom of God, the one thing that matters. You know, the one point in, in American history when we didn't have this materialistic view was during the Second World War. During the Second World War, there was something more important than our own little petty interests. It was winning the war. And you know what? People rationed. 
People rationed what they had. They used to have these bumper stickers. Is this drive really necessary today? They rationed what they had for a higher purpose. They made buy with less. We need to understand as believers, and I close with this, we need to understand that we are in a war, aren't we? We're in a war. We're in a war, the stakes of which are so high, it makes all the other wars put together look inconsequential. We're in a war against an enemy that is so great, so evil, that it makes Hitler and Mussolini and every other evil person in the world look like a little tiny pawn. We're in a war where we are about taking back what belongs to Jesus Christ from the enemy, including people's lives and all the other destructive influences of the enemy in this world. And we need to use all of our resources that we can to do it. Now I can't, that means that there needs to be in every believer's mind this point. We need to be asking, what does the Lord want us to live on and what will be our surplus? I can't tell you what the ceiling of your income should be I, or what the ceiling of your lifestyle should be. It's different for every person. But there should be a ceiling. In other words, a point where you say, this, this much is justified for me to live in in, in, a, in the state of war that we're in. In a world in which you're starving kids, this level of lifestyle that I'm living at is, is, is appropriate. But beyond this, everything I earn, everything I make, I'm going to invest in the war. Now, I'm going to tell you something. That if you make that decision, the enemy will be all over you continually to compromise it because it will feel like you always need that extra income. This guy in Ohio I told you about, he, uh, he, he lives on $60,000, $70,000 a year. He's a multimillionaire. He's got a nice house, drives a nice car, wears a nice suit, but it's not nearly what he could have. Everything else he puts to the wartime effort. I can't tell you what that level is, and no one's in a position to judge anyone else. And I am not saying in any way or suggesting that we should be like guilt-ridden people who feel bad about every new shirt we get. I used to be like that. Remember, Shelly? I used to be like, you know, oh, do I really need this shirt? I could support somebody in Africa with it. Even Jesus took time to change water into wine, because once in a while people need a party, all right? Yeah, it's true. It's true. And if God blesses you with stuff, be blessed. Be blessed. Enjoy that. At the same time, ask this question, what would the Lord have you to set as a ceiling for your lifestyle that the rest, it all belongs to God anyways, that the rest could be given in terms of your ministry, you make an impact in people's lives. Father, you have blessed us. We are a rich people, Lord God. By world standards, we've got more money than most people ever dream of. And we pray, Lord God, that you would make us good stewards of this. It all belongs to you, Lord God. We pray, Lord God, that free from any kind of manipulation, free from any kind of guilt tactics, but Lord, just by your gracious work in our life, that you would be making us people who have a vision for your kingdom and have a desire to invest all that we have to further your kingdom. And we want to glorify you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.